1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is a special episode in which we're going to do a deep dive into an issue that uh, I think is important to all of us. Uh, and and we're going to use as the hook, the centerpiece for that discussion, a great new book, really important new book by Tim Weiner. Uh, Tim is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He wrote uh, 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 the definitive history of the CIA legacy of ashes, which won the National Book Award. Um, and his new book is called The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia and Political Warfare, 1945 to 2020. I recommend it highly. Welcome Tim. Thank you. Uh, we are also joined today um, by General James Clapper, uh, a friend of ours who was uh, formerly director of national intelligence, uh, formerly ran the Defense Intelligence Agency, one of America's leading uh, uh, experts on intelligence, but also national security and world affairs. Um, hi, General Clapper. How are you today?
2: Um, I'm well, thanks. Thanks
1: for having me. And uh, we are joined by another of our friends, Laura Rosenberger, who's Senior Fellow and Director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Hi, Laura. How are you?
0: I'm good, David. Great
1: to be here. Uh, well, it's great to have all of you. Um, and uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start with you, Tim. It's a, Again, congratulations on, on the book. Uh, There was a time, and I was in the government at that time, uh, in the 90s when we kind of thought, well, we're done with this. We've had our Cold War. We've won our Cold War. Um, You know, Boris Yeltsin seems like a nice guy, invites us over for dinner. Everything's going to be fine. Um, And this uh, Cold War rivalry, uh, you know, has a bow wrapped around it. And in fact, I, I remember there were people, Colleagues of mine, uh, very prominent colleagues of mine in the Clinton administration, who wanted to believe that was the case. And now look where we are. And And I think that's why the book is so important, because it shows the continuity uh, of this central relationship in geopolitics for the past 75 years. Um, was that continuity the reason that you ultimately undertook to write this book? Well, I'll
3: tell you, this book actually started— <clears throat> Uh, on July 18th, uh, 2018, uh, I was up in Vermont with my wife working on another book. Uh, we were trying to stay off the internet and television. Drove down to the general store, picked up the New York Times, and there was Trump and Putin in Hell Stinky. We all remember what Trump said. They were both asked, didn't Russia hack our election and attack our democracy two years ago? And Trump said, well, you know, my director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, told me it was Russia. I have Vladimir Putin standing here, he says it's not Russia. I don't see any reason why it would be Russia. At which point, the collective head of the entire U.S. intelligence community exploded Flames. People don't remember, though, what Putin said in response to that question. He said, well, as to who can be believed and who cannot be believed, no one can be believed. And that is the pointed end of the spear of Russian political warfare. That to get us to believe in nothing. And in that sense, Trump has served as an asset of Russian intelligence. There are no facts, there is no truth. So I put down the book I was writing and wrote this book. And I argue that there's a continuity, a straight line from the end of World War II until today, the nature of Russian intelligence has not changed. It is to get us to disbelieve in the truths we hold self-evident, to see, you know, the FBI and the CIA Nazis and stormtroopers, to quote Donald Trump, um, and to rub salt in the wounds in our body politic and in this effort they have an ally an asset in the president of the united states
1: what do you think uh general of the thesis of tim's book and of his description of the president of the united states as an intelligence asset of uh, the russians
2: well i i, I first i generally uh, and first uh tim congratulations uh on, on your book um, Having written one, I have great admiration for anybody who writes a book or, or writes more than one book. Because uh, for me, I'm, I'm one and done. Anyway, congratulations. I think it's true that there's been a uh, actually remarkable continuity um, in the Soviet-slash-Russian relationship uh, since the end of World War II. Uh, with the possible uh, variation, perhaps, in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the wall. There there was a different relationship then and there is the argument uh, that some people mount about had we handled ourselves differently, uh, we may have uh, somehow uh, changed uh, Russian behavior. Uh, I don't think that's true. I don't think, I don't care how nice we were to them. Uh, I think that's it's almost like in, in their DNA their genes to behave as they do. So, uh, and now it's, uh, you know, it's it's the Soviet Union, lesser version of the Soviet Union without all the population in the satellite states. But their fundamental behavior, particularly with respect to their intelligence activities and um, their active uh, information operations campaigns, uh, witness hours, that's, uh, there's been a, a, a level of continuity there. So I, I certainly agree with that. On, on the issue of, uh, you know, Trump as, as a Russian agent, uh, I mean, perhaps so, but he, it's, it's unwitting on his part. I think he's he's more just a, a tool. And as I said before, um, I think Putin approaches Trump as though he were an asset. Um, and, and with the objective being to, to gain uh, influence, gain leverage uh, over uh, someone that uh, he would regard as a, as a, a useful instrument. Uh, now, this is not a, a bilateral relationship, I don't think. I mean, uh, you know, people would start with Trump and protest that uh, I'm not an Asian Putin, but it's just, it has more to, in my mind, it has more to do with the way Putin approaches a relationship, Uh, I think that's an out-characterization.
1: Far be it from me to disagree with you, General, on on almost anything. However, I think that there is a cutoff point for unwitting. I'm not sure how many months or years into a relationship uh, where your intelligence community and the press and experts in the community are saying you are being used and you continue to want to be used, that you can't be accused of being unwitting
2: well i don't you know i don't know uh uh i i mean i take your point uh but um i i just don't know how and, and of course as dan Coates according to bob woodward says that uh, you know he can only the only conclusion he reaches he's he can reach is that the Russians have something on well that that may be true um and someday maybe we'll find that out i i my own speculation, and, it is, and it is only that speculation, is um, that there's a, a financial entanglement or some promise of future help. I don't, I don't know. But until such time as we actually, you know, I mean, I could, I can, I can understand the case, the inferential case for the way he behaves. But we actually don't know uh, empirically what what is it that. that that drives that relationship, and what is it that motivates Trump to behave as, as he does? Why is he so deferential to Putin? Why does he refuse to dime him out, which he has yet to do after all, almost four years? So, you know, we can speculate till the cows come home. And Dan's conclusion, Uh, again, it's, it's inferentially. Inferential is, well, they, they've got something on them. Well, okay, what? And we don't know that. So that's why I I don't fully buy that just just because I'm I'm trying to be uh, evidentiarily pure, I'll put it that way.
1: Well, that's a a position certainly to be respected. Laura, um, Tim was talking about the thrust throughout this um, uh, of Russian disinformation, the goals of Russian disinformation that have existed throughout this. What do you think of how he framed it? Uh, and how relevant is that right now in 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 our daily life here in the United States as we face an election in two weeks? Well
0: so good. Well, I also haven't had the pleasure of reading the book yet, so I look forward to doing so. Um, it sounds like a, a really great piece of work, and congrats, Tim. Um, I guess I would say a couple of things, and it, it, I'm not going to weigh in on the on the previous debate, although I, I do think that that it's not unrelated here. Um, From my own analysis of looking at um, Russian information operations and how it fits in with the broader campaign using a suite of asymmetric tools to attack American democracy, um, I I think that um, the overarching goal to me is clear. It is to weaken the United States by undermining our institutions, dividing us, and sowing chaos. And... I do think sometimes that when we focus too much on just an election outcome, or frankly, when we focus too much on the question of whether or not the president of the United States is an agent or not, we actually risk being a little bit distracted from the point of what the Russians are trying to accomplish in the long term. And as we approach the election, I actually think it's really important to remind folks that the intelligence community assessment then validated later by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and in its own bipartisan investigation found that had Hillary Clinton won, the Russians were prepared to deploy a disinformation campaign with the intent of undermining her legitimacy as the elected president. That Russian officials and diplomats were going to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election, that there was an entire social media campaign in the can ready to go. And there were some indications, although these reports are heavily redacted. Um, That they were prepared to use evidence of their presence in U.S. electoral networks in advance of the 2016 election in order to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the outcome of the election. And so I think that even if Donald Trump had lost in 2016, we would have seen a concerted effort by Russia and its proxies to continue to undermine and delegitimize U.S. democratic institutions and to divide Americans against one another. So while I absolutely think as Bill Evanina, the head of the National Counter, Counterintelligence and Security Center himself just said last week, that the Russians absolutely amplify Trump's content about you know, the election being rigged and they're gonna amplify all of his divisive content as well. I think that we should not be so um, comforted in fact to think that if Trump leaves office, this problem is going away because it's decidedly not. And it's definitely not just about one person, and it's not just about one election. The last point I would note is there's a really interesting study that just came out from Johns Hopkins, which is relevant to the previous exchange between General Clapper and Tim, which found um, a, a, you know, and really documents part of the Russian strategy in the past several years has been to use active measures to drive a wedge between Trump and his intelligence community. And that that has been a strategic goal of what Russia has been trying to do as well. And so it speaks to all this back and forth that we've just had here about, you know, why isn't Trump listening to his own intelligence community and why is he believing the Russians? Well, in part, it's because according to this interesting study that just came out, um, that the Russians have actually been trying um, to provoke that very outcome. And so I think it's a very complicated set of factors. But I think the overarching frame of, you know, these, um, these operations being with the intent of weakening US institutions, undermining us, um, and stirring chaos and division, even alongside potentially trying to help one candidate or another, um, is very much how I see the Russian operations.
1: Okay, so Tim, in the context of your book, you talk about a 75-year arc where the Russians have been trying to do this. And of course, Russian intelligence over the 75 years has had some notable successes recruiting some American spies gathering certain kinds of information that was classified and so forth. But in terms of this goal that Laura just described of dividing the U.S., weakening the U.S., reducing American standing internationally, et cetera, would you say that they're having more success now than they've had at any time in that 75 years? Yes, because
3: they have an invaluable ally in the President of the United States in pursuing that goal. The goal has always been, from Stalin's days, to weaken this country, to weaken its alliances, to burrow into uh the government of the United States and subvert it, uh, to sabotage uh our foreign policy, uh, and latterly to you know, <clears throat> weaken and destroy and divide uh our alliances, and particularly NATO. Uh Donald Trump has done all that or endeavored to do all of that. Uh, He has uh, attacked distinguished American ambassadors as human scum. He has called CIA uh, Gestapo and the FBI stormtroopers. Um, He has disparaged the very idea of intelligence. He puts it in ironic quotation marks. And in particular, he has amplified Russian disinformation to an extent that we've we've forgotten how terrible this is. The idea that it wasn't the Russians, but Ukraine, that monkey wrenched the 2016 election, working with Hillary and now working with Biden. That idea was planted in Trump's head a year and a half ago by Vladimir Putin. Okay, Trump pursued this snipe, this this fantasy that Ukraine had somehow monkey wrenched the election and was still at it. and it got him impeached. Rudy Giuliani, sorry to bring him up, has been pursuing this uh, conspiracy theory for a solid year now. And if he keeps it up and if he keeps hobnobbing with Russian intelligence officers, He's looking at slammer time. I mean, the extent to which the Russians have succeeded in their aims of weakening and dividing the American body politic against itself and against its longtime foreign policy goals
1: is really breathtaking. So, General, let me ask you to pick up on that point that Tim, Tim just made. You've been part of the intelligence apparatus for decades. You've been part of the fight against... The efforts of Russian intelligence. Do you agree with the assessment that right now is the moment of the greatest success of Russia in advancing this goal of weakening the United States by dividing it against itself?
2: Well, yeah, I completely agree. Um, in our intelligence assessment that we published and briefed then President-elect Trump on January 6, 2017, first key judgment was that the initial and primary objective of the Russians was to sow doubt, discourse, and distrust and discourse in, in this country, and by whatever means. So quite apart from uh, interfering in, in an election, or elections, plural, is, is to exploit, under, unfortunately, the, the uh, divisiveness and polarization that consumes this country. And, of course, we're a great target for them. But that's their first objective is to undermine us, under undermine our our institutions, undermine our values, cause doubt to be cast on the, the very notion of democracy. And uh yeah, I'd agree with you that uh they are enjoying uh their greatest success ever, even though they've been doing this sort of thing uh for a long time.
1: So Laura, that brings brings us to the place these conversations don't usually go because people tend to be talking about what's going to happen in the election and who's going to intervene and are they going to mess with, you know, voting systems and so forth. But, but you just brought up the fact that had Hillary Clinton won, they had a plan and what they were going to do was they were going to go after Hillary Clinton. They were going to try to delegitimize the election and so forth. Well, look, lo and behold, here, their asset, the president of the United States, has been working actively to delegitimize the outcome of this election for weeks prior to the election. What do you expect after the election?
0: Yeah, I would also note that even in 2016, then candidate Trump was um, uh, pushing the idea that there was mass voter fraud and that it was going to be rigged. and all of that. And in fact, while we won't ask General Clapper to um, give up uh, uh, private conversations from the time, um, you know, the the public understanding of some of the debates that happened in the Obama administration about what to do in advance of the election was in fact that there was concern um, of of bringing, you know, too much attention um, and playing into the hands of the rigged election narrative that president or then candidate Trump was himself pushing. Now we're in a different position now where it's a sitting president of the United States and commander in chief who is also once again peddling those narratives and spurious claims of voter fraud and problems with mail-in balloting. And I think that the um, target surface of the American public is even more vulnerable to the success of a potential operation like that than it was four years ago. Um, there was a really significant study. Sorry, I'm all in study citing mode today, but a really significant study out of the um, out of Harvard University a couple of weeks ago um, about disinformation about mail-in voting and the degree to which that has been really driven by President Trump more than anything, um, and and you know as well as frankly some traditional media outlets. And so you know, I think we do have a public that's, that's quite primed for this kind of um, perception hacking, which is um, what uh, a lot of analysts refer to it as, right? It's creating the idea that there has been a hack of the election, even if it has not occurred, just based on the fear or the perception of insecurity. Now, I'm very concerned about a scenario like that playing out again. Um, In fact, um, David Sanger, who is, I know, another frequent guest um, on the pod here, um, had a story um, yesterday, along with a few colleagues, about um, some concerns from cybersecurity firms that um, they've detected Russian hackers on state and local networks, Um, not necessarily having to do with election infrastructure itself, but adjacent And so could this be used in an information operation post-election in order to inject doubt as to whether they might have access to election systems? It's very possible. Now, the good news news is that unlike four years ago, we actually do have much better detection systems in place to, to know whether, in fact, there have been intrusions on election systems. We do have much better systems to respond to incidents, and more than 90% of ballots this year are going to be cast with a paper record as a backup for auditability purposes, which means that even if there is some sort of intrusion, it's very unlikely to actually affect the vote count. And even Trump's own um, administration has, has made this point over and over and over again. But the reality is um, that people are going, um, you know, people are concerned and people are going to um, worry if there are claims of um, some sort of hack into an election system. And it's going to take a while to disprove that, right? And so I think that um, we should very much be thinking about the aftermath of the election and the way that potentially a foreign actor, Russia in particular, could use that time frame in order to undermine the legitimacy of the outcome or inject doubt and provide fodder for those domestic actors, including the president, that want to question the integrity of the election. Um, and, and really, I think there, the media's got a significant role to play. Social media platforms have a significant role to play. But at the, end of the day, at the end of the day, the American voter has a significant role to play because it is our minds that these actors are trying to persuade to believe that the system lacks integrity. And if we refuse to believe that, if we continue to have faith in our democratic institutions and to know that even while it may be really messy for a while, the system's going to sort it out, that is actually sort of the last buttress of defense that we face in this contest.
1: Uh, yeah. By the way, I point out, uh, although uh, Laura in her current capacity is strictly nonpartisan, she was Uh, in a variety of senior posts in the NSC and the State Department of the Obama administration, Um, and so has a particular perspective on this. She also advised the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, Tim, picking up on Laura's assertions, um, having written this book and having studied not only Russian intelligence, but um, Vladimir Putin, what do you think, the next move looks like from Vladimir Putin's perspective?
3: Well, I think we need to talk about abilities and intentions, Uh, capabilities we can figure out, intentions are a little harder. Putin's candidate is chaos. He doesn't give a plug kopeck about Donald Trump. Chaos wins, Putin wins. The Russians have capabilities to sow an almost infinite amount of chaos during and after election day. Uh, As they did in Ukraine in 2014, 2015, 2016, which we now see as kind of a preamble to what they did to us, they can hack election computers. They can, more ominously, bring down a power grid with a few keystrokes with previously implanted malware, uh, which would cripple the election count, which is is done uh, by the Associated Press. You hack the AP, you bring down the count. Uh, They can sow any one of a variety of conspiracy theories and disinformation uh, uh, bombs into uh, the American mind, which is the battlefield here. And Uh, with Trump as the agent of chaos foment a tremendous amount of, I would say they can incite to riot, you know, in in the uh, American uh, common ground. Um, And there will be enough chaos on election day fomented by the president and his allies. if they dispute the count, uh, the Russians can amplify that particular uh, bit of dangerous nonsense. Um, we are looking at a scenario raised by the president himself, that he will reject the results and attempt to remain in office despite being repudiated by the American people. And if any aspect of that succeeds, our beautiful 243 year experiment with democracy
1: is screwed. Um so, General, if uh uh young, fresh faced uh intelligence officer Tim Weiner came into you and said what he just said, um how would you assess that? How would how would you assess that as um, a view of what Putin wants, of what Russia might do, and how might you amend it? Based on your own experience or knowledge,
2: I don't know that I would. Uh, I I uh, I am not terribly. Uh, I have trouble coming up with uh, a uh, happy face uh, scenario here uh, th- through both the conduct and the aftermath of the election. I, uh, no matter who wins, um, there are going to be uh, large segments of the population that are that are disaffected resentful, et cetera. And our good friends of Russians are going to be right in there uh, exploiting that just as they they have. And again, going back to, you know, what's Putin's motivation? Well, to the extent that he can weaken us in his zero-sum approach to things, that that further strengthens Russia. So I I can't uh, really disagree. I, I think and again, we can argue till the cows come home about whether Trump is winning or not, but it's uh, ironic and disturbing that his narrative about the veracity of, of our voting process is the same narrative as the Russians. And of course, the Russians will um, exacerbate uh, those disaffected groups. So they will have messages for uh, you know, the white supremacists, uh, proud Boys, uh, uh, extreme right—you know, right wingers—you um, know the, the kind of people that conspire to kidnap governors, that sort of thing. So, it, I, I and the longer the process, I'm assuming there's going to be a gap between November 3rd and, and when the results, whatever they are, are known, which is a, in my view, a very vulnerable. A uh, uh, time will be a very vulnerable time for us. So I I don't know that I'd uh, I'd have much in the way of windage to uh, uh, to change Tim's assessment.
1: So Laura, the um, general just mentioned Proud Boys. I saw a story today that some people in Florida got messages from. Uh, allegedly from proud boys saying you know vote for Trump or else kind of message from a server in Estonia david right well exactly and and it looks looks like looks like active measures looks like there could be more along those lines um and you know you, uh, you have to
2: figure uh, that the russians are are going to agitate the, the the QAnon believers
1: well that's right. We don't we're, we're not 100% Is this time for
2: the QAnon uh movement to uh have an uprising?
1: Well that's right. Yeah. And so you have the QAnon and you have Proud Boys and you have the right you have the Michigan uh so-called militia and you've got uh, other 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 cases emerging. But I think Laura one of the questions on the minds of American uh voters uh is are we set up To counteract this. And there there, there are two different stories that we're hearing, right? On the the one hand, there's the story that the president is denying it, and um, uh, Ratcliffe is denying it, and Barr is denying it, and McConnell is blocking funds to protect the elections and so forth. On the other hand, you have the FBI director who seems to be seriously addressing this. And there are some encouraging stories that there are. Uh, there are preparations and countermeasures in place. How do you assess the American ability, Laura, to deal with this Russian threat right now?
0: So I actually, I, I agree with how you laid that, that out, those two different stories. I think there's a third story, which is probably an offshoot of the first. So um, let me start with with what you laid out as the second story, which is, which is what the FBI director and I would add to that. Um, uh, Chris Krebs, who's the head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, which is charged with defending sort of the, the um, and supporting the states in their, um, you know, in, in the security of their systems. Um, you've got um, Bill Evanina, um, who I mentioned earlier, over at NCSC, um, part of the intelligence community. And then you've got um, General Nakasone up at Cyber Command. Um, and these four officials have actually really banded together. And I know that like government PSAs are not super sexy, but I would actually like to um, commend to all of your listeners A video that these four officials did, which is quite remarkable, actually, in the way that they lay out the steps that their agencies are taking to defend the American election and the things that American voters should know and do. And that builds on a series of of statements and PSAs that the FBI and CISA have put out together, raising awareness about the threats that they see in a very measured way and talking about what voters can and should be doing about it. I think when it comes to the network defense aspect of our actual election infrastructure and when it comes to taking the fight to the Russians through offensive cyber measures and what Cyber Command calls persistent engagement and defend forward, but basically um, doing what we can to sort of knock off their ability to engage in these operations. And on top of that, Um, the sharing of information with the social media platforms. So a lot of the action that we've seen social media platforms take in recent weeks um, has actually been on tips passed to them by the FBI, which is something that has been relatively unheard of in the past. Um, That is all good news. And that is all progress. That's in that bucket. The problem is, to my view, that a big part of this challenge is actually building resilience within our own society to these kinds of measures. Um, And that means building a more resilient information ecosystem where facts matter, where truth matters, where we're not dividing each other, where we are um, actually trying to come together as a country um, with our allies to solve problems with one another, et cetera, et cetera. And on that score, we have seen very little progress um, in Closing off what we know are vulnerabilities that have been used by Russia in the past, and by addressing these societal challenges that are being exploited to divide and undermine us. And I would note on this point that I actually think, you know, David, you, you know well, I have devoted my last four years to focusing on the threat from foreign actors and Russia in particular. But I think that it's also really important that, frankly, when it comes to QAnon and the militias and all that stuff, that we recognize that a lot of this is pretty bad and done and things we're doing to ourselves. And that even if the Russians come in and amplify this stuff, it's like barely noticeable. I mean, it's, it's like a tiny little bit. The way I talk about this is, you know, we have a raging, raging wildfire here and it has... Tons of fuel and is just consuming acreage in a completely uncontrolled manner, right? This is like a zero percent contained fire. And the Russians occasionally come up and they squirt a little accelerant around an edge where they're like, hey, I want you to take out that town over there. Like, just go take out that town. And that's basically what we see at this point. But it's it's not actually um, in many ways useful from a, from a societal resilience perspective to look just at what the foreign actors are doing, because we are doing so much of this to ourselves. And unless we can wrap our heads around that, we're never going to address this problem. And that's where the chaos agent, Trump, etc., is really doing enormous damage. The last point I would say, and David, you know, that this is my hobby horse, that the, it, you know, it has been for some time, but we cannot politicize foreign interference. This has got to be addressed as a national security bipartisan challenge and the degree to which we see Ratcliffe and others in this administration, the president himself politicizing foreign interference, it just becomes both a vector that makes us more vulnerable and it makes it that much more difficult to actually take steps to address it. that's really back to your first point, right? Of what we hear from the president and everything. So those are the three stories that I think are happening: the politicization of the issue, taking it to the Russians, and actually securing our infrastructure in a meaningful way, and leaving ourselves really vulnerable domestically from a resilience perspective.
1: Okay, so we've got five minutes left. I would like to ask a question um, to General Clapper, and then I'd like to finish with 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 Tim and give him sort of a last uh, chance to sum this up with respect to the book. But General, um, Laura just brought up uh, d i Ratcliffe. I personally have found uh, his behavior to be beyond extraordinary. I think it's been an enormous disservice because of what Laura just said. He is clearly politicizing things. Uh, and he's also saying things that seem to be on their face untrue. Um, uh, you know, perhaps you have some uh, sense of collegial respect here, but this is a guy who's holding a job that that you once held. How how do you feel the the you know particularly and and he was preceded by an acting DNI in Richard Grinnell, who did the same thing. Do do you, do you feel that I, we are being weakened in this challenging time by the politicization of our intelligence community leadership?
2: Well, of course, uh, <clears throat> you know uh, we're seeing what happens when you install a, uh, a political partisan whose first uh, requirement, first qualification, is is uh, obedience and loyalty to the president, and that that's and you know that's what that's what the president wanted, and that's what he got, and the, you know the the Senate was complicit. Even though I think they knew that he, he didn't he didn't qualify for the position uh, just based on uh, the stipulation in the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. So what what's the effect on the community? Well, it's it's bad. And when you have intelligence that is is used as a weapon domestically, uh, as as a political instrument, uh, you know. I, you know, I wonder how much time uh, the DNI is actually uh, spending. Uh, you know, watching for threats uh, to the country. I mean, we've we've become so consumed internally, domestically, that we we I think we're losing uh, our focus on on the likes of Russia and and China and North Korea, et cetera. And uh, when the DNI spends a lot of his time putting out press notices and appearing on, on Fox, it, it uh, appears to me he's not spending all that time not spending uh, a lot of time on intelligence uh, as it's been classically practiced. Uh, and given his background or lack thereof, I mean I think you know he needs to spend more time doing his homework on, on on intelligence. But to answer your question, I don't think there's any any doubt that uh, we are in a uh, less safe uh, status uh, by virtue of having a political partisan who's not qualified professionally to run the intelligence community.
1: Thank you. Um, Tim, uh, just First of all, by virtue of the fact that we do this on Zoom, I can watch you nodding and gesticulating. So some of the things that people have said, I get a sense that you want to respond to. But but I'd like to tag on to that a question, and it's and it's a little personal for me because I have a book coming out also, which deals with some of these issues centrally, uh, and that is that there are places where you go in the United States and you say Trump and Russia, and they say, oh, that old thing, that oh that old story. That's just, you know, that's a liberal left-wing media thing. And and look, he wasn't impeached. He wasn't run out of office. Let's stop talking about it. One of the reasons I wanted to do this this podcast and focus on your book, beside the fact that the, the book is so good, is to me, Russia is the original sin of the Trump presidency. Russia not only helped him get elected, but it demonstrated that Donald Trump would do whatever it took to get ahead, including embrace the most egregious enemy of the United States if it helped him. And 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 nothing that has transpired over the past four years has suggested that he has learned from that, regretted that. In fact, on the contrary, he's compounded it uh, and uh, rewarded Russia repeatedly. Uh, and so to me, this seems as central as it ever has been. And that's why I I recommend the book. Um, have you run up against this as well? And and what's your reaction to this this phenomenon of sort of Russia fatigue?
3: It's very hard for people to accept a brute truth here, which is that the president of the United States is the greatest national security risk to this country, greater than any foreign adversary right now. The Russian op that helped elect him was the most successful political warfare operation since the Trojans took in that horse. Uh, And if it succeeds and ultimately creates a victor in this coming election of chaos, that is their candidate. Um, then we are in deep trouble. We might get past it, but we are left with a serious, serious problem, which is the ultimate success is to get Americans to believe nothing, to believe that there are no facts and there are no truths, even the truths that we have held to be self-evident, that the president is not a king, that we are a country of laws, At the risk of bringing a tear of uh, wistful memory to General Clapper's eyes, I wanna say, uh, I wanna repeat something that Ronald Reagan said at his first press conference as president nearly 40 years ago. Reagan said, the Soviets reserve the right to lie, to cheat, to do anything to further their objectives we Americans play by a different standard. That's not true anymore. The president will lie and the president will cheat to preserve his power. Authoritarian leaders and the parties that support them exist only to perpetuate their own power, not to serve the people. And An entire political party, once called grand and old, has subsumed itself to the perpetuation of their own power in Trump's name. That will be lasting damage. The greater damage is the inability of Americans to believe anything anymore. The results of an election, the pronouncements of presidents and congressmen and senators, and this is the ultimate triumph of Vladimir Putin, who has 16 years
1: remaining in office. Well, that is a, a chilling summation, and and it's one that I'm not going to try to uh, to to improve upon. Um, it, it's it's uh, uh, the, the, the audience doesn't know this, but it's a little it's a little troubling for me to hear such powerful words from somebody that I went to college with. Uh, to see such great books being written by somebody I went to college with, uh, and to know that I can't achieve that level, but at least I can host him here. Uh, I think this is a a really, really uh, important book, The Folly and the Glory. Uh, Congratulations, Tim. I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, I I think the work that Laura is doing at the German Marshall Fund is essential uh, for the point that, uh, that Tim just made this is not gonna end with this election. Uh, and damage has been done that is not about Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Uh, it's about how the American body politic uh, uh, views truth and lies and uh, uh, it takes in information and makes judgment. Uh, and and so Laura, I, I think the work is incredibly important. Uh, General Cla- Clapper has been one of the outstanding voices Uh, of speaking truth to power when he was in power and speaking truth to power subsequent to his time in office. And it has been essential uh, in helping us to understand a time when the president of the United States and those around him uh, have in fact been lying and misleading us. Uh, And uh, he is one of those touchstones that we can turn to, uh, to, 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 uh, to gauge where the truth really lies. So to all of you, I thank you. Uh, to those of you who have listened, uh, we thank you. We have a lot of interesting things coming up between now and the election. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for them. And I would be remiss if I did not point out that next week's book talk, to which you can actually join and ask questions, um, is going to be about my book, um, which is not as good as Tim's, but it is shorter than Tim's. Um, and so that's a that's a plus. Um, Anyway, I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks, everybody, and stay safe.